Welcome back to The Journey of a Singer with me, your host, Nick Pritchard. This is the podcast where we dive into the fascinating and unique journeys of those individuals within the creative industry. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Natalie Rushdie. Natalie is a classically trained singer with an impressive resume, including performances at prestigious venues such as the Royal Albert Hall, St. Paul's Cathedral, the London Coliseum, and 10 stadium renditions of the National Anthem. Natalie made an entrance into the jazz scene with her sold-out shows at the Brasserie Zadell in London. During our conversation, Natalie takes us through her journey from brewing tea at her finance job to enchanting 90,000 fans at the EFL Cup Final at Wembley Stadium. She also shares the touching story behind her latest music release dedicated to Dame Deborah James and in support of the Bowel Babe Foundation. We delve into the day-to-day realities of being a singer in today's music industry and provide valuable tips and tricks for aspiring performers. So sit back and enjoy the journey of a singer with today's guest, Natalie Rushdie. Natalie Rushdie, welcome to the journey of a singer. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited because when I get a guest on, I do the research. Inevitably, you get the best bits from the person themselves. And oftentimes, a lot of that stuff isn't available on the web. And you don't get it in this authentic, raw form. So I've been personally quite excited to hear what it's been about for you. I'd love to start at the beginning, if that's possible. Yeah, of course. Where where did you begin singing? Was it a childhood thing? Um, So I used to sing outside in my garden and my neighbours spoke to my mum and they were like, "Um, maybe you should get her into singing or musical theatre or performing because I'd sort of be dancing and singing outside. And my mum was like, okay. Um, And then I just sort of went straight into like Royal Academy grades and then just, I absolutely loved it. But I had such a fear of performing I was really nervous as a child like I would like really badly shake or all of my sort of early performances you'd see me like clasped hand were behind my back because I'd so be so nervous and so embarrassed that people would be able to see that and so that's sort of where I started when I was nine and then I did sort of lots of like music competitions Um, I did like the Kingston Music Festival Guildford Music Festival all of them basically Um, And then I wasn't quite sure if I was going to carry on, basically, because I just thought, am I too nervous to do this? Oh, really? So, yeah, it was sort of like that sort of catch 22. Do I carry on? I was quite a nervous person, but here I am. So that's sort of of how I started. And then I went to um, university to study music. And then I left university and sort of moved to London and wasn't quite sure if I was going to do music or if I was going to do fashion. So I went to the London Fashion College and actually studied marketing and buying and merchandising. And then basically I was like, oh, I need to give the singing thing like a go or see if it works out or anything like that. I went to um, Amsterdam Opera House, trained there for a bit, then did some more operas. I basically started from the bottom. So I did all of your sort of backing singing. I did um, all of your sort of behind the scenes singing shows, you know, little chorus parts and then sort of grew up from there. And it's classically trained is is how you trained. Yeah. And is that something that you, is that what you always wanted to do to be a classical singer? Was that always the genre that you wanted to do or was there any other influence involved there? I think honestly, no, both my parents weren't musical and they didn't come from musical backgrounds. So they had no idea that there was different sort of options. And I think I went to school and they were like, you need to do your Royal Academy grades, you do a Trinity. So I did piano, violin, theory and singing. 
And then I did all of those. And I was just sort of pushed into the sort of classical world. Well, not pushed because I didn't know that there were other options out there, to be honest. Mm. And then it wasn't till I'd sort of been doing classical for about five years. And my husband said to me, he's like, why don't you sing the songs that you like to listen to? And I said, I, I don't know. And he's like, well, you know, you can do that. And I was like, oh, OK, well, now I'm, you know, you think you always need someone to sort of give you that permission to be able to do what you want to do. And then I sort of discovered that actually I much preferred it. That was sort of my love and my passion. And then I could actually do it. For me, I've had like almost two careers and I've seen two sides of different industries, but obviously they're the same industry at the same time. Mm. And those two sides is classical and jazz. Yeah. There is somewhat of a correlation there in the sense that the type of people that book those singers in terms of clientele um they seem to like both genres yes which i I suppose would have been a nice handy transition because i think going from something like classical to maybe pop or folk or something like that is is a bit far-fetched but classical to jazz that that's nice and, and you can bring what you've learned from the classical yeah. world into the jazz world. Definitely. It's helped me so much because I think classical, what I didn't love about the classic, classical industry is that you can't put your own take, that people want to hear a song as, as it's written. And I understand that, but I sort of was sort of the rebel and wanted to always put sort of my own sort of flair on songs. And that's what I loved about jazz is that you were able to do that and you were allowed to do that. And that for me was really exciting. But at the same time, even though like when I just sort of do like the London Coliseum and that was my first gig with a full orchestra and like a 60, um, 60 piece choir. Um, and for me it was the classical teaching I'd had Mm. that allowed me to do that because I was aware of what was going on behind me and that was so for me I am always appreciative of my classical background Mm -hmm. because it's allowed me to do different things. I remember chatting to a guy called Matt Ford who's a great big band singer. As a jazz singer what you're talking about putting your own stamp on it playing around with the feel the timing those kind of things it's beautiful to do yeah and a few years back i would probably do that way too much i went to see matt ford and he was like no you've got to strip it back to the basics yeah. first get the song right yeah. sing it how it should be written yes and then you can maybe play around with a few little bits and bobs here 100%. and there and it's not something that i've been jealous of people that have had that classical training but certainly that is a beautiful place to start yeah. because firstly technique wise it's yeah. going to be spot on and secondly <laughs> the way in which you're used to singing a song is yes. how it should be i feel like classical sort of, um sort of education gives you the best foundation and i do completely agree with him that you really have to learn a piece as it's written and then you can play around with it and you can sort of put like i look at it sort of like the embellishments the sort of exciting bits on top of it and this is what i've noticed doing big gigs where people have not had these backgrounds and a lot of the time pop singers really struggle because when you're doing it with an orchestra it's not like you're doing it with a small band or in a recording studio and every you can do whatever you want you can't do that when you have an orchestra behind you you have to listen that's the most important thing you have mm-hmm. to listen to what the orchestra is playing because they are not going to follow you they are going to follow mm-hmm. the music and that's just you're not Absolutely. going to be able to sway that playing with a five-piece band you can do what you want and they'll follow you yeah very difficult for a big orchestra to suddenly manoeuvre, yep. even if there is a conductor. And they're not there. going to. Yeah, and they, exactly. They don't care. That's, that's not how they're used to playing as well. So yeah. You have to respect where what they've been, yes. what they're reading. They're, they're, they yeah. are reading a score and it's not going to alter from there. They're very, very good at yeah. being precise, very precise yes. on that score. 
And alternatively, when you come to do the more jazzy bass gigs where it's more free, how has that been transitioning from a very different scenario where yeah. you, there's no way you could do that? How have you found it on, on the other side of things? I find it quite difficult. I yeah. find it difficult to be able to switch, being a, be a bit more free, to be honest. But I still think the same thing applies. If you know your music that well is that you can afford to do that. Do you watch yourself back when you're singing yes. as well? Are you very critical of that? Are you yes. a critique of yourself? 100%. I, I was actually told off by my vocal coach because I would do performances and come off stage and be like, how can I be better? Mm. And she was like, Natalie, you need to stop doing that. Like, you've just literally had a standing ovation. Like, you need to, like, enjoy the moment. Mm -hmm. Enjoy that you performed because it's wonderful. But I think you sort of, you're on this constant train of, like, you want to be better. You, 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 I'm sort of really bad at doing that, actually, reflecting, girl. That was wonderful. That was great. It was a good performance. And then watch it back, like, in a week later and then reflect mm -hmm. and work on it. And so she banned me. I'm not allowed to critique myself for at least 24 hours. Um, which is really funny. But so I used to do that with her and we would rip everything apart from the way that I walked on stage, the way I smiled, hand movement, gestures, vocally, sound of vowels. I mean, everything. And I do think for me, that was really helpful to get mm. better because I think as you become sort of more established and you do different performances for example like tv performances you realize that you make really funny faces and i remember i did the royal albert hall and i was so excited to be there that i was like nearly crying with joy and i sort of wandered on did my big performance and then i she was like why didn't you bow and i sort of just like you know sort of looked really nervous and she was like no you need to give a proper curtsy like people want to enjoy that moment mm -hmm. so that was something that we worked on we work on the sort of whole experience do you think sometimes if you're too in your head thinking about all these things it can detract from the performance itself or do you think it's very important to focus on the performance I think there's a fine line. I think there's a point where you need to enjoy it. And I feel now in the last couple of years, I do enjoy my performances rather than being like, I need to do this, this, this. But I do believe that practice for me is the most important thing because then it turns into muscle memory mm -hmm. and you just do things automatically. And I always, whenever I got on stage, the immediate thing I do is smile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It relaxes yeah. the face. So that's the immediate thing I do. And then I sort of practice like my curtsy and things. But I think for me, those things were really imp important because I think performing, there's a difference between being a wonderful singer and a wonderful performer. Mm -hmm. And most people want to see a wonderful performer mm -hmm. because there's yeah. hundreds of great singers hundreds yeah. hundreds and hundreds and how do you differentiate between the two there's uh, there's something called the halo effect which i'm yeah you may be familiar with which is where if one particular attribute is good it yeah. bleeds into the rest of the attribute for example if you look amazing yeah sometimes people are inclined to oh they hit a wrong note whatever yeah if you look terrible yeah. they would pick up on that instantly and vice versa from what i've seen from the the videos i've watched you've always got your attire is spot on and yeah. there's clearly been a lot of thought into yeah what you're wearing and how you appear to the audience as well is that something that you do consider a lot before doing a show 
I always make sure that my dresses I can actually sing in them and there's a lot of space for breathing and obviously moving about and everything but I think for me it just adds to the whole performance personally mm-hmm. um yeah it's kind of a strange it's a strange one because you're in this kind of thing where it shouldn't be important but it is so for example like when when I did my Wembley Stadium so I've done 10 stadium performances and when you do a st- a stadium performance you sing the national anthem you are given a sort of a long criteria of what you can and can't wear and you basically can't wear the colors of the team it's not good to wear really? green because obviously and then you're part of the pitch yeah. um and then obviously either bbc or sky have to sign off your dress or what you're wearing to make sure that you're not wearing sort of like a bikini on the pitch or something like that yeah. um so there is a lot of consideration for that and especially doing television you don't want to be wearing like flowers or patterns or you know stripes or something because that can you know can be picked up quite weirdly with the camera so and I try to for me I mean I wish I had a stylist because that would save a lot of time um but I try um and wear things that are flattering because I'm not a size eight or a ten so I try to wear things that are flattering and look nice on stage so it just yeah that's how I sort of my dress picking goes. Basically. Well, I mean, you clearly got a good sense for fashion. That's Thank that's you. something that um, stands out. I as feel well. like that's I'm why a granny. <laughs> really? like, that, that's the thing when everyone's like, "Oh," but I'm literally like, I just like to wear flowers, florals, and dresses, and yeah. basically like I'm an old granny. That's... I think well, it's, it's very classy. Thank I think you. that goes with your brand. I always say that I would love to be really trendy and cool mm. and wear like all really chic outfits, but I just I'm not trendy and very cool, so I just like to wear dresses and that's all where I go yeah so that's where yeah and in terms of those uh like you said you've done uh, 10 stadium 10 stadium stadiums. performances yeah in terms of your journey getting there what's the process been like for you getting to the point where you're singing at the Albert Hall mm. you're doing the stadium tours you're on tour with people like Blake and what's that process been for you I think the process and I think that I always get asked this on Instagram. It's longer than you could ever imagine. So I'm 36 now and I've sort of been singing professionally probably for about 15 years. And I think people see the glossy aspect of it. And I think this is the same with every singer that 90% of the time is spent rehearsing or working on what you're doing or trying to get other gigs and things. And they don't see that aspect because it would be boring to be like, hey, I remember, you know, rehearsing for the 10th millionth time um but to be honest like I started at the very 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 you know bottom doing everything I could taking on every single gig that I could getting as much experience as I could and then I sort of trained and trained and trained and trained and trained and did some more training and then basically I feel I learned a lot I toured with Blake and their classical boy band um, and they won a Brit Award and they're amazing. And I toured with them for about 50 gigs and I learned so much from them and they gave me so much information on how to perform. And also one of the things I remembered that I learned was learning how to talk in performances mm-hmm. about what to say, what was interesting, what you should be saying. And then obviously I got my Wembley Stadium gig and then obviously things were going wonderfully well and had lots of other gigs. And then I decided to pack it all in. Really? And I was like, I'm not going to do classical. I uh, can't. Just for the, you decided to pack it in for the classical, but not for your music. No. So basically I was going through like a sort of conflict of confidence. And I was just like, I just 
I want to be singing these songs. Mm. So I basically booked four gigs at Zadell, which is a venue in London, a sort of jazz cabaret venue. And I was like, I don't know if anyone's going to come. I don't know if anyone's going to be interested in hearing all of these new songs. And they sold out. And it was the only shows they'd had sold out the whole time. So then I sort of got London Coliseum and the Royal Albert Hall. and But it's constant. I think people forget that they see the singer and think that's just what you need to be but I constantly am emailing and asking people so to perform at the Royal Albert Hall at the beginning of the year I said right I'm going to perform at the Royal Albert Hall I don't care that's what's going to happen I emailed every producer every director of the show and I looked through what's on and just kept on emailing saying listen to me please Um, and that's how I got the Royal Albert Hall but I think people don't realise that it just naturally and it's probably the same for you that you just constantly have to be emailing people and putting things out on social media so people are reminded that you're a singer so yeah it's been a hard and I remember we kept my vocal coach and I were coming back from BBC Breakfast and I'd just gone to iTunes number one and it was five hours from Manchester to London and we drove five hours and we're like isn't this crazy that like we're iTunes number one this is mad and we spent the next five hours talking about all the rejection I had. And we were still talking about all the times I'd been rejected or an edition hadn't gone right or, you know, I hadn't got a gig or, you know, I'd been dropped by a gig or. Yeah, that's the thing with this industry. You have no idea what's going on. But I think people you don't obviously put that up online. Maybe you should. It seems to be a common theme yeah. that people certainly that I've spoken to, nobody's sat here and said, yeah, it's been easy. I did this and this and this, and this yeah. is what I have to do. Virtually everybody has said it's been full of rejection. There's been yeah. a constant battle of trying to get somewhere. And even yeah. then, it's battling to stay there as well, yeah. or even to get to, to the next place. And that is part of the journey. That's part of why I called this the journey, because yeah. it's very easy to see what's on social media. Yeah. That's your highlight reel. We were discussing before how I... And and I think a lot of singers like to have their Instagram as a showreel feed mm-hmm. to show sure. people, yes, you should book me. If some if a client comes and looks at your Instagram, they want to see your best bits. Yeah. And that's why it's a we marketing have the best tool. It's a marketing tool. Yeah. Um the problem with that is then people assume that that's your day to day and that's what happens all the time. You're performing at the yeah. Royal Albert Hall, you're on tour here. And the reality is, nine to five, you're emailing fifty people yeah. saying who's the producer for this show how do I get to perform here and that's something that I don't think the general public and even a lot of singers who maybe aren't where they want to be understand or realize you have to be grafting it's relentless and I kind of feel and this isn't meant in an, an awful way but I think if you want to be a singer if you don't have that drive in you to constantly pick up the phone or send emails just don't do it it's too hard because every day you will send 100 emails and you'll get 99 no's and one maybe. And I'll think about it. And I think people forget that. And I think I always was like naive thinking, oh, I'll be at the Royal Albert Hall and that will be it. Mm. And then you're like, oh, gosh, now you've got to go the next day and start emailing. Oh, and I think that's, you know, if you're nervous about sending emails or phoning people or asking people to do things for you or to help you either learn really quickly how to do it or don't bother because there's a hundred people that will do. That's an awful way to put it and it's a harsh way to do it, but it's too hard to not 
that's the reality of the industry. What about those that have a manager that is willing to do that for them? I've had many managers. And they don't do enough? No one's going to push as much as you are. They're just not going to. That's just the reality. I mean, I think a manager can be really helpful. I don't know if do you have a manager. I have a manager that does my contracts. Okay, yeah, um, that's not, helpful. That's clever. Not particularly music related. So yes. they're not out there. The, the gigs that I'm getting are from myself. I have yeah. an agent for TV and film. But yes. what I will say is all of the biggest things that have come have come through have have not come through the agent or management yes all of them that's all of the reality them. um and you're very correct in saying nobody's going to push harder for your dreams than yourself yes because they're your dreams they're not yes. your manager's dreams necessarily and your manager has like more other people they're working on unless you're like you know julipa or something um i've had quite a few managers and a bit like yourself everyone came to me directly and once you sort of know what to look like, I have someone that checks over my contracts, but of course, um, but I think you're probably much better managing yourself. Mm. And in this Just, day and age, you have a greater ability to do yeah, so. Definitely. I think before we didn't have, um, gosh, it's making me sound so old, but you didn't have Instagram. There was obviously YouTube and Facebook. I think we're so lucky now that, for example, like, I when I wanted to go to jazz, I found um, Sally Green, who we'd become very good friends, and she owns Money Scots. And I messaged her, and I out of the blue, and I said, "Hi, Sally. We have friends in contact. I'd love you to listen to my stuff. Gone to the jazz industry, and she's literally like, okay, do you want to meet? And we'll I'll help you. And she sort of really helped me. So I think there's wonderful things about Instagram that you can YouTube that you can really find people and connect with people and ask them oh could you give me some advice or consider me in the future or something mm -hmm. so I think that's really exciting and interesting and helpful and then there's the other side is it's a lot of work to keep up the whole Instagram mm -hmm. that's not a facade but you know yeah but you have to constantly be in the public eye you have yes. to you have to be constantly be doing things yes, because definitely. if you go quiet then people think oh they're not working or they forget there's so many people out there yeah. doing something that you're fighting for the attention of, of people you're fighting for that attention to show up on their feed so yeah. that when they think oh it's my wedding i need to book a singer or yeah oh there's a tv show we need a band or something like that yeah. you're there in their memory yes. and it's a really good tool for yourself to promote your performances, your songs, your concert, mm -hmm. your albums, your singles, whatever you're doing. So I think before, whereas unless you had a record company, that was sort of, it was never going to happen. You could not, you needed that sort of tool. Whereas now I think you can do that by yourself, mm. which I think is, it's nice as a performer to have that ownership. And ultimately there is somebody there saying, you can have the job or I'll put you in touch with the producer. And it comes down to the old phrase of who you know, yeah. which is, the phrase gets a bit warped because every single business person, singer, actor, whatever, every single one of them, it's about a, a who you know situation. Yeah. Um, nobody has done it on their own because no. you, you have somebody that's giving you the permission to be on the TV show or to be on the... Um, yeah. And part of the skill is growing your network in a way yeah. and that isn't obtrusive. You don't want to be yes. too obtrusive with it because there's nothing worse than somebody that is 
networking for the sake of networking yes. and what would you say to anyone upcoming Gosh. that it's is really trying to build their network without being too much of a a, a bit of a nick <laughs> yeah oh my gosh that's such an interesting question and it's a really good question and it's essential for this sort of, it's essential for every work but especially music industry work um gosh I think it's really important to go out to people and ask for help and push yourself push yourself forward but you also have to make sure that the product that you're pushing forward is really good so that people because you sort of only really have one opportunity to do that so if you sort of go in and just be like listen to my recording that I've done like I don't know in my barn or something they're going to be like okay thank thank you sort of thing whereas I think you really have to think go out for sure go out promote yourself and you should but I think if what you're promoting has to be really good or the best of what you think you can do mm -hmm. um or you know be interesting invite them to a show invite them oh I'm doing this can you come or you know hold back like three or four tickets I always whenever I'm doing a show I always try and hold maybe about five tickets and actually give them to people that I think you know might book me for this I might book them for that which I've always found quite useful because then people see a whole performance mm. I always remember going to big events and galas and um I always remember people would go and speak to my husband because he's also in the industry and people would ignore me because mm. I was like a nobody I was like fresh faced in the London scene and I always sort of remember who treated me well when I was doing nothing and had no performances and I think it's so important when you're at an event and you're talking to someone that you also include who they're with because they're gonna go home and say that person was awful to me because I've been on the other side and where people have literally stood in front of me to talk to him I'm like, all right, okay. It's a show of character and yeah. awareness as well. You want yeah. you want to work with people that are socially aware, yeah. and that's that was kind of the premise of the question as well as that the concept of being an ick is that is very much yeah. what you're describing. Going straight to the producer and going, please sign me, please sign me, or whatever yeah. it is, and they can see right through that yeah. straight away. And the people around them can see straight right through that straight yeah. away. And and I always, and I'm sure is the the case with yourself and and your husband. But the first person I talk to is my girlfriend. Yeah, of course. She's my eyes and ears. Yeah, and she sees things from a different perspective. And she comes to events, and she's 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 been in the same position as you, where yeah. people she's close to are gatekeepers to certain things, and yeah. people. Um, for some reason, get very funny about the partners sometimes. And partners or people that they think are irrelevant. The irony is those are probably the most relevant people to be considerate Always. of. Always. So, yeah, the, the concept of networking has to be done in a very yes. particular way uh, yeah. without being too too forceful. But at the same time, you have to put yourself out there. I think yeah. what, what strikes me about you is you have the ability which is your product which is the singing yeah. but you also have the ability to put yourself out there and understand the yeah. social awareness of how to network as well and that seems to be a winning combination between the two because there are hundreds of singers out there yeah. who have a great ability that have no idea how to yeah. get in contact with certain people yeah i mean i think i have no shame i will email everyone and anyone <laughs> 
panicked um, and asked for their help. Um, I also think an important thing is to listen. So I always try to remember what people have said to me and then come out with them, whatever. I meet them, you know, a year later and say, oh, how was that going or that kind of thing. But without sounding terribly cliche, and I hate saying this sort of thing, but I always try to be kind. Mm-hmm. Like we don't know what people are going through. You know, people, I tend to find that people will be helpful and kind if you've been helpful to them. And that's something, um, as you may know, I've recorded a song for my friend, Deborah James, um, Tell Me It's Not True. And I was able to pull on every contact I have and everyone did everything for free. And I genuinely believe it's because, first of all, I've worked my way through the industry. So many people that are, you know, at the top of their game with performing musicians were also doing the same thing 10 years ago with me. So they know that, but also... Um, I always try and help people and musicians if I can or with introductions or anything and I tend to find that it does come back to you so that's mm-hmm. kind of one of my without that gives me sort of the ick saying be kind and be nice but I do think it does reciprocate yeah. if you've got a good reputation within the industry mm-hmm. most people will help you there's an element of karma there isn't there a little bit of oh yeah be nice sure. and it will come come back to you uh there's a great sure. book by Dale Carnegie called How to Win Friends and Influence People and that is the core concept is you you being kind is, is only ever going to yeah. bring kindness back to you um that's a that's a really important point and and you never know who you're working with later down yeah. the line who might such as this instance with with Deborah where you're able to call on yeah. people you've worked with 10 years ago 5 years ago yeah um you you never know would you like to elaborate for us on the situation with uh, Deborah because I know it's quite a it's it's quite a raw topic yeah, because it definitely. is fairly recent um but I also think it's important to raise awareness as to what she was raising awareness for and mm-hmm. you created that song in her name yeah. and I believe you also sang at her funeral as, yes. as well. So it's it's a very important song to you, to her. Yeah. Um, would you like to share with the audience? Yeah, so I have known Deborah for about, Dame Deborah James, for seven years. And we were introduced to each other for our husbands. And then we sort of immediately hit it off when we met each other. And our love sort of music and musicals and wine and having a good time. Um, and we used to always go out to parties and events together and she used to always make me sing at her big galas and you're like, you've got to do this. Um, but she was just like a force to reckon with. She was the nicest person on the planet. She made you feel such warmth if you were around her. She was the most amazing, incredible friend. So I've had quite a lot of um, bowel issues and she would send me a hundred messages of different papers, different scientific studies, reading reports, who I should be going to see, all this kind of stuff. Um, And she would be going through chemo herself, but she would do that. She just was the most wonderful friend. And then we had our, we both had sepsis at the same time. And we made a pact that if we both survived it, we'd go to Ascot together. When we went to Ascot, that was sort of the end of her life. She passed away a week later. Um, But we did have a wonderful afternoon together, drinking and like reminiscing about old times. And she was telling me, I mean, it was a very sad topic. She told me what she wanted for her funeral and she told me she didn't want to die, which was like the worst thing I'd heard from her. Um, But we also had a really lovely afternoon together, just being able, because she basically didn't want to say goodbye to any of her friends. So she sent us all a message and she's like, guys, this is it. 
and sort of everyone sort of messaged him, we'd love to see you, please. Like, and she just said, no, I don't want to see anyone. I don't want to say goodbye. And she messaged me afterwards and she was like, this was the perfect way to say goodbye. We just had a wonderful afternoon, like old friends. And then she asked me to sing at her funeral, Tell Me It's Not True from Blood Brothers. And it was just the most emotional performance I've ever had to do. I remember her coming in, in obviously she's in the casket and I was like hysterical and I sort of looked at her family and I was like, oh my gosh, I've really got to get myself together. Like this has to be like a really good performance. Um, luckily it went well. And then basically I was performing at the Hello Awards, um, the Hello to Kindness Awards. And I was sat next to her p- parents, Heather and Alistair, and we'd become quite good friends and the nicest people on the planet. And they said, oh, would you ever record that song? And I was like, oh yes like if that's what you want and then I was like I'll record it in like a small studio with me and my pianist or something and Zaf was like no 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 no. if we're going to do this for Deborah we do it properly so we started reaching out to people and we're like well where can we go with this like who's who's going to help Ben Kennedy came on board and he's like an amazing pianist and arranger then Abbey Road came on board we actually reached out to Willie Russell who's obviously like Tony Olivia Award composer who wrote the piece and he said oh I've actually watched Natalie's clip of her singing this song and I give you full permission to record it and I give you my blessing. And he actually gave us the royalties and rights for the piece. So everything goes directly, all the money that's raised from downloads and streams goes directly to the Bow Bay Fund. And then I sort of called every single person, every musician, and I said, can you do this? Can you do this? And in the end, we had Abbey Road Studio we had amazing producers, amazing engineers, like BBC recording it. We recorded it with this woman called Sarah Hardy who made the documentary. So she knew Deborah and it was just, it was just incredible. And then her parents came down to the recording studio and it was such an emotional day, but it was really beautiful because she would have loved it. So the last sort of two weeks of my life, I've been sort of heavily doing the campaign, talking about check your poo, making sure that people hear it. And obviously it's been number one iTunes and it went into the top 10. Well, it was number 10 in the official charts, which is like nuts because we absolutely had no budget. We've spent physically nothing. Um, So the fact that all that money can go and the fact that someone can do it without a recording company behind them is like ridiculous. It's incredible what has been achieved and yeah. I think you're very right in saying that she would be very very pleased with I mean you as a friend as well to know that you've gone out and done that because I don't think there's there's many people going back to what you said about you've got no shame about emailing yeah. people I don't think there's many people that would have been able to pull off what you've done yeah and truly be able to respect what she had also built she'd built so much awareness Mm -hmm. around bowel cancer and the bowel babe foundation Mm -hmm. and her show in affiliation with bbc to be able to continue on that in such a way is beautiful and hopefully it has a a lasting effect as well and hopefully it can go on to even bigger and greater things so congratulations because it's well deserved and it, it deserves to be up there in the charts need some sleep yeah yeah I, I imagine it was a lot of work a lot it of... was a lot of work it was constant probably about 
four months of constant work. Mm. And do you know what was amazing about the music industry? Is I think because it was a fellow music musician asking another musician to help out mm -hmm. for someone they had definitely heard about and heard about her journey. So many people came on board. And if they couldn't do it, then they got their friends to do it. Oh, I can get this point, there's this person. And I was amazed that I was like, wow, it really does show that like musicians are like incredible people. Yeah, I would I think so. Yeah. Most of the people that I've worked with have, have been very nice yeah. to work with. Yeah. Very, very nice. And you also got fantastic distribution, the opportunity to be on Sky. Yeah. Was that something that, that Sky were interested to put out there or was that something that you had to knock on the door? It was a mix, to be honest. So we were very kindly helped um, by, I know, a PR company that came on board to help us. Um, and they basically helped us with organising things. But also I pulled on the last 10 years of mm. doing performances where you meet people and then you're like, hang on a second, hello, um, I need your help now. For example, um, I was doing a Christmas performance last year and Jeremy Vine was one of the speakers and we exchanged emails and he asked me to do his radio show um, talking about COVID. I had COVID quite badly. And I then reached out to him and was like, hey, Jeremy, just so you know, I'm releasing this single and I need your help. And then he was like, OK. And then we went on the Jeremy Vine show. So I think it's I think it's a mix. You never know, like 10 years later, you might be pulling on a contact mm. that you worked with before. Um, yeah, so it was definitely mixed. But we had so much support from The Sun um, who obviously um, Deborah wrote her column for and the BBC were amazing and um, Sky were amazing to include us and GB Muse and all this kind of thing. So we were really lucky. Well, I say lucky. It was uh, it was lots of people working yeah. together to try and make something great for her. It's projects like that that really give you faith in humanity. Yeah. The fact that you pulled in all these favours. Yeah is what gives it an even more human essence to it yeah. as well. I think that's what makes it extra special. I don't um, think anyone's going to pick up my phone call now. <laughs> I'd said that to my friend. I was like, I don't think I can pull on any favours ever again, at least for about 10 years. Well, but they would have seen what the end result is. Yeah. And I think when somebody is part of something like that, yeah. it, it makes them feel a certain way. And yeah. I, I don't see why not. I don't see why that hasn't even strengthened the relationship between those two people. To we'll do something in the, in the future, yeah. Let me know in in a in a couple of months or something if ever if the phone's yeah. gone quiet. But um, no, really, congratulations Thank because you. it's an amazing achievement, and I think everyone involved will be feeling yeah. very grateful, especially um, Deborah's family as well. I'm sure they're very yeah. grateful for it. And I remember when we started talking about the recording for Deborah, people were like, "Oh, but do you have a record company?" And I was like, "No." it's going to be really hard well, yes it is going to be really really hard and there's going to be numerous bumps that will go across the road um, that we could never even thought about when we first started for example even though we were on iTunes number one for like basically a whole week you know when you go to the home page and they say top hits of today new releases new songs today they would never include us in anything. Really? Is that because you didn't have a label? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So it was constantly, and then it meant asking more and more people to share it. So it would just, you know, people would be able to find it. So it was just, yeah. So I think for me, when I always, when people say I can't do something, then I'm like, no, I will do it then. Mm. That's my sort of driving force. I think probably I share that with you a little bit. Of, yeah. Um, there's something in, in you that doesn't like someone else to tell you you can't do something yep. 
There's um, always like that little something and I'm always like, oh, I'm going to quit. Or, I mean, not recently, but, you know, for the first 10 years, I was like, oh, gosh, this is just awful. And you're like, oh, gosh, there's something that makes you want to carry on. Mm. And I think those are the people. I think there's a Will Ferrell thing going around TikTok. I think it's Will Ferrell. And he says the only um, thing that joins us all together of these actresses and actors and singers is that the people at the top never gave up. Mm. That's it. Yeah. I strongly, strongly believe that with all ounce of yeah. my body, particularly for business. But the where I have a real thought battle crisis is it's different for singing and acting and music mm-hmm. and entertainment because there are certain roles that you only get at certain ages. Yeah. And there is a preference for, for, like, for example, with my acting, if I don't get a role as a teenage heartthrob in the next two to three years, that's it. That boat set, sailed. Mm-hmm. So if your goal is to be a teenage heartthrob, you can't sit there and say, yeah, just keep going, just keep going because you're yeah. on a timeline, you're on a time frame. Yeah. But I thought, do you know what I thought? It's really interesting. When I was in my 20s, I gen like, yes, of course, with acting, if you want to play like a very like particular role, and of course, but I do think the industry is changing. And I thought from 20 to 30, I was like, that's my limit. You know, you can you, you go into record companies and they're like, once you're past 30, you're like sent to the pasture field. Like, that's it. And I generally believe that. And especially being a woman, you're like completely drilled in being like, you need to be young to be at the front of the stage. And then I got to my 30s and I was like, hang on a second. I'm getting the best gigs I've ever had in my life. I'm singing the songs I love. I'm doing what I want to be doing. I'm doing all these amazing shit that I could have never even believed that would have happened. And I think people like, you know, Adele says this. She said, I wrote songs for people my age that wanted to listen to music. You know, I'm not writing for the teeny boppers. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to be a pop singer. Can't dance for one thing, but I'm not going to be a pop singer. You know, I can do my own thing and I'm carving out my own path. Mm. And I think, you know, we are taught that life does sort of end when you become slightly older or you have children. And I've sort of found the opposite. That's that's great to hear. And actually... Uh, you know, I haven't been through certain stages of my life yet, but that's the conclusion that I came to when I was having these thought battles. Yeah. And also, we have to be grateful for the fact that in classical and jazz world, yeah. there's actually a real respect for the longer someone's been in the game, which is, yeah. I think, a good thing because it takes it takes a lot to stay relevant in, yeah. a, in a certain industry. It's a good thing. I mean, I thought when I had Rose, that would be the end of my career. I genuinely be- believed that. And I think you're sort of told... You know, you have kids and that's the end. But actually, it hasn't been the case at all. I've been able to use so many elements of like motherhood and bring elements to my singing. Mm. It just means that I just don't take on all the other gigs I don't want <laughs> yeah. to be doing. <laughs> this scene of jazz and, and classical and theatre, mm-hmm. you can be doing that till I'm forever. I mean, forever. people like Shirley Bassey. and yeah. so not, You know, it's timeless. Yeah. And people really appreciate and enjoy an the older you get, the more experience you bring, the more wisdom you bring to your performance. The voice sounds slightly different. You don't sound like a teenager anymore. People like that. Yeah, I saw um, Gladys Knight perform at Ronnie Scott's and obviously she's in her 70s. That was the best show I've ever seen. Mm. She was sensational. She was just amazing. Her voice was incredible. She looked incredible. 
I mean, just the performance was incredible. And I just thought, wow. So I just kind of feel people like to pigeonhole you into different things and you have to sit that mm. spot. But I've sort of realized that if you sort of just carry on your merry path that create your own path create yeah, your own path that's yeah. exactly what you're doing and that is also the most fulfillable yeah i feel that is the way to do it when you first enter a situation mm-hmm. you are the novice yeah the beginner and you're trying to learn and understand how things go as people drop out yeah by the average so let's say that the oldest one drops out or the one that's done with it drops out yeah then a new one comes up and eventually you find yourself moving up just by purely being there. Yeah. Not by doing anything yeah. else. You just have to be in the game yeah. and eventually other people drop out, new people come in and those new people are novices trying yeah. to understand how the game works. And eventually people come to you for advice yeah. as how do I get this? And before you know it, you're the top dog yeah. in, in the arena because other people have dropped out and you've just stayed in there. So back to your Will Ferrell yeah. meme or quote or whatever it is. Staying in the game, and yeah. I think it was Seth Rogen I saw say the same thing. It might be Seth Rogen that said it. He said, out of everybody that I've seen in this acting world, the people that have made it have just stuck with it and stuck with yeah. it. And I think there's a lot to be said. And I am also a fan of that because that differentiates between yeah. the people that actually want to do this for their yeah. life and those who don't. And yeah. the reward, the top reward should be given to those who have been willing to, to do so yeah. and work. So yeah. I think where we get warped is when... The 16, 17-year-old in the media gets absolutely blown out of proportion, like yeah. the Justin Bieber, and you sit there and you think, "What? how has that What? How has that happened? Yep. What have they done that's different? To, and I think that warps the public perception, and I think, unfortunately, it warps performers' perception as well of how things work. Yep, I think people see the glossy facade and think it's easy, but haven't seen the... It's easier to forget the 10, 15 years of hard work you're climbing up this imaginary ladder um yeah it's hard should we take a little little break and then i think if someone said what's your dream scenario like what would you like to do now my dream and if money wasn't an object and like nothing it didn't need to be successful and i just needed to do it i would love to do like a huge swing piece band album um and i kind of feel like we have michael buble and he's amazing but we don't have any females that have done that sort of thing mm-hmm. and i would love to do that that would be my ultimate goal that's also uh, something i would absolutely love to do yeah i really share that with you yeah because you're right there's there's michael buble but he's been around for a while been a while for a while there's no one really taking the the next step the reins yeah it should be you thank you very much <laughs> i didn't want to say it but <laughs> now that you say you, it, it <laughs> um no i've thought about that and when i first started out i thought you know i can i can sound like michael buble a lot if i try yeah and then you have to be so careful because yeah you don't want to be a tribute act that's the no. last thing you want to do and I remember I would do shows and start with feeling good and people would be like, oh my God, you sound so much like Buble. And eventually I got to the point where I thought, actually, that's not a good thing. You want to be an individual stamp on yourself. And that's something that's taken me time. And now I I feel like I am an authentic version of myself. And Mm -hmm. when I perform live, it has my voice on it. Yeah. I think it's difficult when you do jazz or classical that you don't want to become a sort of joke or a cliche or someone... You need to be your own person doing your own thing. 
And um, Elton John says it always takes 10 years for an artist to find out who they are. And I think that's a really, really important way to live as an artist. You know, experiment, try different things, try different songs, different styles. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good to take inspiration from these artists. Oh, 100%. Because there's a reason they are where they're at. And yeah. And I absolutely love Buble stuff. I'm yeah. a massive fan. Of... And he also took lots of stuff from Frank Sinatra mm -hmm. and, you know, all of the, you know, old school. And made it his own. Exactly. And I actually think one of the reasons why we haven't had and the next Buble, because there's plenty of people that have tried, and I've yeah. I've looked into it because that's been an ambition of me to step into his yeah. shoes. There's plenty of people that have tried, and every single one of them has tried too much to be like Buble. Yeah, and they're just not original enough. But then on the other side of things, you've got someone like Jamie Cullum, yeah, who is probably, and I love Jamie Cullum stuff, but maybe even too original to the point where he's not filling the boots of Buble because it's too different. But he's doing his own thing. Exactly. Yeah, he's doing so, his own his own thing. He's not he's not filling he's that not, role of yes. the Buble. Yeah, it's it's a hard it's a fine line to balance basically. And it's also not quite as simple as, oh, I'll just fill the boots of this person, even though exactly. you might think you're good enough. It what you're talking about that big band album yeah. is something that I've wanted to do for ages, and I put together a big band, um, and I did a big band recording. Yes in studio with Calamau, who arranged Buble's Barclay Square song. Amazing. It was an amazing, amazing experience. Yeah. And I did it independently without a record label. And that process <laughs> cost me. I got a single out of it. I got an EP out of it. The idea was to make demo tracks to send to record labels yeah. to, to say, look, I'm doing something that's different yeah. to Buble, but can fill his boots. There's a big band song here. Yeah. There's a jazz band song here. Um, what did they say? I haven't been able to get in touch with them. They're very hard to get in touch yeah. with. And so I've had numerous meetings with record companies yeah. while I've been... I haven't had one recently, but at the very beginning of my career, I had management and I've gone into various different record companies and they've always said the same thing, um, that there's a lot of luck. And secondly, it's to do with... you. This is what I've never quite understood. You need to be able to sell the singles and tracks and albums on your own mm -hmm. before you go to them. Yeah. And my question to them was always the same. If I could sell them on my own, why would I, why would I need you guys? That's like, so funny. What it is, is that record labels no longer want to do the legwork. No. They want you to do it. And the reason is because these days you can go boom on TikTok or Instagram yeah. and you can already do all that work for them. Yeah. So they'll just take the easy option of finding someone that's yeah. done all the work. Yeah. And the, the quote that I've heard from a couple of people in the music business is they'll take you on whether you could make it with or without them. That person's going to make it. Yeah. We'll take them on because they're going to make it anyway. Yeah. But they, then would you just release it on your own accord? And that's and then, the that's the dilemma that the artist then has of why why do I need yeah. you? Yeah. And then they respond by saying, well, we've got the contacts, we've got the yeah. distribution, we can make it go even bigger. Yeah. Um, and it, it used to be the case where they'd find an artist, develop yeah. them, release their yeah. stuff, and that would be the And way it's the same it. in the movie industry. You know, Judy Garland, you know, all of these old school, you know, actresses would be signed when they were babies, basically. Mm -hmm. And then they'd work and then they are who they think you are. And, you know, they are, they have the whole performance element. They are able to, you know, walk on stage, they're dressed right, they'll be able to greet people, they'll be able to talk to media correctly. And that was all taken in by the industry would 
do that for them Mm -hmm. would teach them how to do it would teach them how to act all those kind of things and that was taken so i you know it is harder because you don't have that but you can do it by yourself what what seems to be the case is there's been a redistribution of making it Mm -hmm. where you've got more artists that are able able to make a good living from being a musician and less of those big breaks i got a record label i signed to this there's plenty more people in the industry now who that's their thing full time. That's what they do. Yeah. Um, and that's possible because they don't need the record label. So it's kind of a yeah. win, win, lose situation. But personally for me, I'm not in it to make a good living as an artist. I'm in it to blow things out the park and yeah. take it to another level. Um, so that's where I'm... I'd like to make a living. <laughs> it would be great. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, no, I think it's, yeah, it's hard. It's different. It's It's different. different. And I think also records don't sell like they used to. Um, So a lot of artists nowadays, you know, they make money off touring, merchandising, performances and, you know, Instagram, your TikTok, your YouTube, Mm. your, you know, your promotions of different brands and products. They make the money off that. Whereas I think you have to have, we worked this out, for a million streams on Spotify makes you a thousand pounds. Yeah. The Which streams don't make you money anymore. They don't make, um, and I think that's something I find really scary. Yeah, as an artist, you're no longer getting paid for your final product. No, which it's all of the other things. It's all the other things. Um, I I've managed to find this niche, and I'm genuinely thinking about because I'm looking to do other stuff now with the podcast and like mm-hmm. more TV and film. I'm genuinely thinking of just releasing all of the like little secrets that I've learned throughout the last few yeah. years. And I found yeah. a way to to do really well off live shows. And I found a formula that seems to work mm-hmm. where I've got regularity, where I'm performing four times a week, but I'm also getting bigger shows where mm-hmm. the clients are paying more. And I've also got the residency type gigs. And I found this balance. Unless you're getting millions and millions of streams on Spotify. Yeah you're not going to be able to make a decent living from from streams at that point. Um, I think it's really hard to have that have that expectation yeah. to, to do that. Um, whereas you used to be able to sell CDs at a gig or you used yeah. to be able to go to the record store, HMV, and be like, put my CD in here. And CDs would sell for 10 quid. Yeah. And now one stream is like 0.001 yeah. pennies. I think as a musician, in my personal opinion, you need both. Mm. You need both. Yeah. And you need to just see it as a marketing tool mm-hmm. that enables people to hear you sing, mm-hmm. basically. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah. Young musicians need to be careful because yeah. I think a lot of the time, especially when I first started off, people promised you the world. And I spent money on recordings and they never went out. They never went anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think you can be sort of really wrapped up in this kind of, oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And I think it's important to have something, but I you know, you sort of get trapped into thinking, oh, I need this. It's it's a very difficult decision to make because I remember when it came to recording that stuff, calculating the predicted costs, which, by the way, ended up being twice as much than yeah. they actually were. Um, I remember thinking, this is an investment that I'm not going to get back financially mm-hmm. in the short to mid run. I didn't do it for the financial return, yeah. but I did it to build my brand. I think as a musician, you need to have a recording of some. here's a question that is specific to females that get married yeah because i've always wondered if you've built your brand as your maiden name yes and then you get married how does that 
what's the decision like to take on if you're doing things traditionally to take on your partner's name and does that yeah. then affect your brand do you start from scratch how does it work um i found this personally very difficult i still find it quite a difficult subject or decision that i had to make um I was obviously known as Natalie Coyle before and obviously I got married to my husband and my husband has a very well-known name. Um, I have a, a very well-known father-in-law um, and unfortunately for me, I didn't really make that decision on my own terms. The media sort of made it for me that they basically started addressing me as Natalie Rushdie before I'd even changed my passport. Um, so I kind of just went with it because changing the media is harder than you think um yeah so I just it was changed Natalie Rushdie and it was always a decision that I wanted the same name as my husband when we had children but I was always like oh I'm gonna keep it while I'm performing um but that just wasn't the case for me so That's that was my that was yeah. my wasn't my decision but um did you think did it have any implications on your career in bookings? Not that I noticed. No. No, not that I noticed. And and in terms of keeping your brand and your name, people kind of just assumed okay, that's how it is and they just followed Yeah, that. they just followed that and I thought it was important that I had always like on my website if just little sort of admin things if someone typed in Natalie Coyle, it would immediately come up with my new website. So just little things like that that it was yeah. And to be honest, like Zaf and I have been together for so many years that it was always, yeah, it just happened naturally through media. And then I just sort of, we just carried it on like that. Mm. But I did have numerous conversations. Aside from the performance aspect, did, in terms of your personal life and being yeah. connected to a certain surname, yeah, did that change anything for you then? Because that's always something that's very interesting. If you've grown up your whole life, mm -hmm. life as part of one family, and essentially during marriage, you're joining another family yeah. and you haven't been part of their family history. Yeah. But all of a sudden you have to get on board very quickly. I think, well, I've been been with my husband for like 13 years. So I've been, I know his family very well and I love and adore them. Um, I think the thing is that I really struggled with is that... I was always referred to, like even, and I talked about this, um, it became a national story. Um, I did a performance at the S Wembley Stadium mm -hmm. and the presenter said, oh, that's, um, I think I was even, I might have been Coyle at that point. That's um, da -da -da's daughter-in-law after my performance. And I was, I actually tweeted about it and said, how is that important that, why is that important when you literally I've done a performance of the national anthem I've done that on my own accord I've been booked by myself I've been like there's nothing it's got nothing to do with who I'm married to and but you've decided to sort of d diminish my achievements just to who I'm married to and I found that very difficult but I'm quite um I'm happy to voice my maybe dis displeasure with what they've said because I don't think it's right um, and I know people have said in the past you know she's got to where she is because of who she's with and um, I know we discussed this earlier that um, Zaf and I were dating for a year and I said oh would you take me on as one of you know your clients and help me and he said no he said you're not good enough you need to go away and you train 
Um, so that was something that I did. I went away and I trained. I trained in musical theatre. I'd already had my degree. I got a diploma in performing. Um, I did all my stuff. And I think that's something that I, feel, I find quite difficult is that I can do so many things. I can perform at the Royal Albert Hall, Wembley Stadium. I can tour the UK with a you know classical boy band. I can do anything. But sometimes people will still relate me back to my family. So it's a real struggle for me because I want people to know me as a singer. Mm not just who I'm married to. Mm. I'm really glad that you're here and being able to say that because having spoken to you for the last couple of hours, I think you've got this amazing personality, this bubbly personality, very easy to chat to, to converse to. And I don't think that that's out there enough. I don't think that people realise enough what you're about. And I'm, I'm really pleased that you're you're getting the opportunities to do that and by going on these things like sky and, and yeah. having these other interviews outside of singing going back to yeah. what we're saying doing the other bits and bobs because it builds that persona around you yeah. what you've done is is yours in your own right and at the end of the day you're the one putting on the show yeah you're the one singing it's your name that should yeah. be on on the headlights um and back to what we were saying about the the family and the family name when i first started doing things and i've done television shows in the public eye and this podcast goes out publicly yeah i try and keep this as unrestricted as i can and i'm happy to talk to anyone about anything there have been times where i've come off the podcast and i always watch them with my girlfriend we listen back and there's been a couple of times she's like why did you say that why like why 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 did you say that on the podcast and i thought I want people to know that this is what I am. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm about. I don't want to have to think about my family's... Mm -hmm. I'm not doing anything ridiculous. I I don't have ridiculous points of view, but I want to be thinking about what is best for this guest to get Mm -hmm. across their story in the way that they want to and talk about whatever it is that they want to. Do you find when you're performing or when you're out and about or when you're doing public events in the public eye, you have to think about how is this perception going to come across on the family side of things, on the family name? Mm, That's a good question. I have never thought about it that way. Um, I definitely don't think that when I'm performing. When I'm performing, I feel like I am myself um, and I give who I am. Um, I love doing live shows because I'm able to talk and perform. Um, When I'm just doing a performance, like a one-off, then obviously I don't think about, I just think I've got to do a great performance. Um, There is an element of that just because people are interested in certain aspects of my life. Um, I do think about it, but I try not to let it sort of, I don't let it dictate who I am. Um, I think for me also, personally, probably why I don't talk so much um, on sort of social media is that I'm severely dyslexic. So I've, before, it's really strange. I find at home, I'm not very good at sort of talking. And then sort of when sort of like a microphone comes Mm. on, something just happens. You're very articulate. Yeah, that I can sort of compute. And I think it's like the performance of the singing aspect that I'm used to sort of doing that. But um, and that's maybe something that sort of held me back that I've sort of had like really badly dyslexic. So I try and sometimes 
would get frustrated with myself talking, but actually I think I'm probably fine talking. I think you're great. I think you should do more of it. I'm hoping this has been an opportunity for for you to think, you know, I, w- I want to do more of this kind of thing. And yeah. maybe it could be something you branch into. You were talking about maybe doing your own podcast. I would or... love, oh, well, I love this idea of this podcast. This mm. podcast is amazing because it's a really interesting concept. And I think it's a really important tool for new performers. Yeah. Um, We've been able to get under the yeah. iceberg and actually talk about what it entails to be a performer. Yeah. You've been an outstanding guest. And I think Thank you, you really um, embody what it is to be this journey of a singer and show people exactly what your career has been and and, and led to. Um, and I'm excited for you. I'm excited to see where things go from here. Who knows? I think it's just it, like never. You never know what's around the corner. You never you? know. You literally never know. I've got a very been asked to do a very exciting gig in September. Um, and I'm really excited about that. But other than that, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> I have no idea. Every day is different. I've very much enjoyed getting to know you and I hope we, we see each other yes. at some point in Maybe the future Maybe we'll do a gig soon. together. I'd love to. I, yeah. I'm always up for... Let's sort that out. Yeah, I'd love to. That'd be very nice. When's your next gig? Um, on, we're not off yet. Oh, God, no, sorry. I'm happy to... <laughs> I, can, I can conclude it if you like. <laughs> we can... <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You've been a pleasure. Thank and, you so much for having me. And where can people find you on social media? Uh, and social media. Um, Instagram, it's just Natalie Rushdie. And um, YouTube is Natalie Rushdie. And of course, please, if anyone's listening, please download Tell Me It's Not True from Blood Brothers. It All the fund goes directly to um, the Barbade Fund. As we mentioned, Spotify, you basically have to get a million plays. So we do prefer iTunes. Um, but it's available on Apple, Amazon, iTunes, Spotify, everything. So any sharing playing is much appreciated wonderful natalie it's been a pleasure thank you thank you for coming on i feel we always need to clap at the end